Hi, everyone, and welcome back to Dear Adam Silver, a show that looks at non-traditional views on sports through the eyes of artists and creative thinkers. I am your host, Abigail Smithson, and my guest today is Dr. Johanna Mellis, who is an assistant professor of history at Ursinus College. Joanna's area of ac academic research is on sports during the Cold War, and she also co-hosts a podcast with two other professors called The End of Sport, which focuses on all the ways that sport is used to cause harm through the racist mascotry, the NCAA, and higher ed's exploitation of black and brown college athletic workers, sexual abuse and harassment, transphobia, and more. Johanna, thanks so much for making time to talk today. I'm so glad to have you on. Thank you so much. I'm glad to be here and have this conversation with you. Yes. So I'd love to start out with just your background in sports and how that brought you to the area of study that you're focusing on now, because it's so uh, specific, but also touches on so many things beyond just sports. And I think that that's what's so exciting about it. So I'd love to hear more about how you came to it. Absolutely. Um, so I was a swimmer growing up. Uh, I lived in a, a pretty uh, wealthy-ish uh, sort of suburb outside of Richmond, Virginia, which is where I'm from. And we were really fortunate um, that in our neighborhood, we had like a neighborhood pool we could walk to and there was a summer league swim team. Um, and I think from when I was like 10 years old onwards, like our parents just like let us walk to the pool by ourselves in the summer, which is such a, such a huge privilege. Um, and so everyone in my family started swimming in the summers when we, when we moved there. And that was just part of our lives is that every summer we, all four of us kids would be on, on summer swim team. And when I was eight at the end of the summer, I, I guess I like, I cried because the summer league season was over and um, our coach was like, oh, you know, if you're interested, there's like a nearby club team. Um, we had, there were other people on the summer league team that were on this club team. And so I started from there and um, was just really fortunate in terms of where I lived. And of course, you know, to have the money to be able to do that. Um, listeners who are familiar with my podcast may know that there's like a really long, ugly history of swimming in terms of really privileging certain groups of people um, in terms of like white people to be allowed to swim, whereas black and brown people uh, have been really excluded from water spaces. So that's definitely a huge part of it. And um, so I started swimming club when I was eight and uh, swim all the way through high school. And it was sort of my dream to always get a college scholarship, like I think a lot of college athletes. And so I swam at a very uh, sort of low level D1 school, which was College of Charleston, which doesn't have a swim team anymore. Um, and I had like a small scholarship. It wasn't big by any means. Um, but um, so that was my life was just literally like revolving around practice and swim meets and, and stuff like that. And then, um, but I, I didn't really think about analyzing it sort of intellectually or in a scholarly way until I was pretty far into graduate school. Um, I mean, I majored in history in undergrad. Um, I hadn't had any classes on sport history at all. Um, so I didn't even know it was a field that existed. And I started my master's at the University of Florida and I was doing um, post-war Hungarian history. So Hungary during the cold war. And in part, cause um, in undergrad I'd been interested in central Eastern European history you know, with the Holocaust and, and the Cold War era just being this this uh, this region of the world that just kind of went through a lot of turmoil and instability with sort of long periods of, of peace where people were sort of figuring out how do I survive underneath a communist or, or a fascist system during the end of war period. 
And, um, and I started doing Hungarian because I didn't speak German or Russian, which are the two kind of dominant languages that people um, tend to learn. And that's pretty widely taught, but that I had no background in. But to study either of those two countries in graduate school, you need to go into grad school with those languages. Mm, wow. That's like an, a whole extra field of study <laughs> added on. For sure. And I and I really like didn't understand academia at all. Um, but my partner was study, was starting at UF um, and he was doing German history. And so I moved with him because I was taking a gap year and trying to figure out what I wanted to do. Um, and so I was living in Gainesville and um, there is a Center for European Studies there. Uh, which a lot of schools have, I guess, like a center for Latin American studies, for African studies. Um, and a lot of these offer government scholarships to learn what are called like lesser known languages. So like Hungarian, um, like Czech, like Slovak. Um, and I, again, I'm familiar with the uh, Central European languages. Um, and there was a Habsburg historian at, at UF who taught Hungarian history. And so I just started reading about it and was like, oh, this is a really interesting um, country to study and there are very few people in the U.S. that study it so I kind of was thinking that's like a good niche where I'm not going to be struggling so much you know like if I were doing German history or Russian history there are just like thousands of people that study it whereas Hungarian history it's a very small community Um, and so I kind of thought well there's sort of a way to sort of make some headway um, and to kind of be in like a close-knit community and um, so I started studying Hungarian and I received a scholarship to study it, which covered um, tuition and stipend and health insurance. And I didn't have to teach, um, which was great for my master's program. And, um, and then it really was when I was doing the PhD and I was trying to figure out what topic I wanted to study. And my advisor knew that I was an athlete. Um, and she had just been part of a book prize committee that had awarded this book, uh, Spartak Moscow, which is about soccer in the Soviet Union. And she was like, oh, like this is, I know, she's like, I know you don't study sport history, but you know, you're looking for topics and you should do something, excuse me, that like you're passionate about. And so she was like, you should read this and let me know what you think. And I read it and I was like, holy shit, (laughs) this is, this is such an awesome book. This is everything I want to study. It's like everyday life history, which is analyzing how do people live their everyday lives, but there's also politics and there's sports and how people feel about it. And so that really like brought me in. Um, And then I started kind of doing some Googling and talking to some people about Hungarian sport history. And all these people were like, you know, this country has this really amazing sport history for being a small nation of 10 million people. They've won more gold medals than like most you know, really enormous, like world dominating powers. Um, And so I started studying it and just through sort of connections of of people that I knew within the field of Hungarian studies, I started interviewing people. um, And that really, really hooked me in of just like their stories of first sort of what was life like under communism, but also what privileges did being an athlete provide for them? You know, what was it like to travel abroad when they knew that there was um, a member of the secret police who was informing on them and who was traveling with them, you know, when they were traveling abroad and, you know, me coming from a very like American background was like, oh my God, that must've been horrible. That must've been so controlling and repressive. And a lot of them were like, I mean, yeah, but like you learn to live with it. Like some of them were very kind of nonchalant about it, at least more so than I would thought. And I'm like, whoa, this is so interesting. This is so not how I was sort of raised and taught to think. Um, and they were telling all these stories of like smuggling goods across borders and, and they were like really 
you know, had like very negative experiences of being surveilled, of being forced to be used by the state as political propaganda, but that wasn't their whole story. Um, and so that was really kind of what, what made me sort of sink my teeth into it and think, wow, like, you know, these are stories that not only, you know, represent more about what Eastern Europeans experienced um, is, and is not this like Western perspective of like what we think they experienced, um, but it's also great, I think, for Western audiences to kind of be aware of like what do different political systems offer people, what are the negative parts about it, but what also are the, the beneficial parts of it that maybe we could be inspired by. Um, and so that's a very sort of long-winded answer of sort of how did I get into sports and then sort of how did I get into a little bit into sort of my own research interests. This is so fascinating and one of the things that drew me to your work, I think, because when I had been in Lithuania, I what I had been referring to the Cold War is referred to as the Soviet occupation there, a whole different way of referring to like 50 years in world mm -hmm. history. And yeah. so really checking my own understanding of what that means, you know, what mm -hmm. the cold, what the terminology Cold War means, what Soviet occupation means. And then also, I think I saw you post on Twitter something about uh, just pushback on the narrative around uh, abuse within gymnastics stemming mm -hmm. only from Eastern Europe, that that's where mm -hmm. abusive gymnastics coaches, they only, it only happens there. And that was something that was brought here from there. And just that that's totally the narrative that I grew up around uh, with. The, and this is not a defense of uh, the Carolis in, in any form, but I think just, just this villainization of um, people who were operating within, I mean, I know that the Carolis also defected to the United States, but that uh, this certain culture or mindset or way of doing things that is wrong. And we are right here in the United States and we do things right and completely mm -hmm. ignoring any of the abuses here, which of course then we see how that unfolds specifically within gymnastics just in the past few years, but also within other sports. So uh, that's just, I know you already, you brought it up and, and I don't know how much more you have to say on it, but that was a really exciting part of what I felt like you were putting forward is this, this kind of turning this Western perspective on its head a little bit that, you know, there's abuses here and also maybe the the perspective that we have on on the Soviet occupation or the Cold War or whatever it is, is very one dimensional understanding mm -hmm. of that region and how how it functioned. Absolutely. And, and you're right. And just even to your point about sort of Lithuania, I mean, I think what that points out is sort of like the, the very different experiences that people had of the Cold War and of life under communism, right? I mean, Lithuania was occupied, right? Like Ukraine was occupied. These places, like there were, like, and, and that's a bit different from Hungary, where um, people do refer to it as like the Soviet period of rule and other things, but you know, it, it doesn't fit into the same kind of narrative. It's a little bit different, right? Um, and I think you know, from a Western perspective, like all that nuance has collapsed um, for sure. And, um, and, and it, I think the gymnastics example is a great one. And, and this is stuff that I've only realized in the last couple of years, but especially since working on the end of sport in the sense that, you know, and, and that really takes a lot of self-reflection as you refer to, to kind of think through like, why was I, why was I raised to think these things? Why was I taught to think these things? And sort of what questions do we need to be asking of it? And the gymnastic example is such a good one because you're right. I mean, the narrative has been, that like the Carolis when they defected, they brought over their abusive tactics. And, and you're right, like this is not to excuse what they did with the, the tactics that they used were awful and the tactics that they used in Romania were also awful. 
and there were Eastern Bloc coaches that did, you know, um, you know, use a lot of abusive tactics. And actually in Hungary right now within the swimming community, swimming is, is a huge sport in Hungary. They've been traditionally really, really excellent at it. Um, it's like a water sport nation. And in the last couple months, there have been people coming out um, who swimmers who worked with some of the best coaches in Hungarian history who have come out and have talked about abusive tactics. And so this is an ongoing thing developing there. And, uh, you know, I think, you know, holding space for nuance and kind of being like abuse existed all over the world. And sort of let's look at the different dynamics of how it emerged in different countries and why. And, and as you said, you know, there's plenty of, of evidence showing that abusive coaches existed in the U.S., Right. And the, by using this sort of narrative of like the Eastern Bloc is automatically evil and abusive, and they brought it over here and, and sort of infiltrated our system, that feeds into like a very pro um, capitalist narrative. Like you said, that the US would do everything right. Um, and that communism, Eastern Bloc communism has sort of been like a disease that infected us. And that that is the, the root issue, the root um, cause of the issue. And that does a disservice to literally everybody both to the victims of, of American coaches abuse that, you know, it existed in the, in the 70s. There's a lot of evidence in the 70s and of the 80s. Um, and also, what you know, a disservice to what's going on in Eastern Europe. And, and I think it's really a politicization of Eastern Bloc experiences that really serves Western purposes. Um, and I think, and we see this in a lot, a lot of different places. We see it with you know, people writing, you know, pieces for like the Atlantic, Atlantic and other, um, other publications about that, that sort of equate um, authoritarianism in Eastern Europe um, and communism with um, quote unquote sort of a woke leftist um, quote unquote authoritarianism over how we're taught history. And it's so bad. And, and that narrative is very anti-black, very anti-brown, anti-indigenous. And it's just, but, but that's what we kind of see even within people who, who, who are historians of, of, of Eastern Europe and of the Cold War, which is really awful. But that is just sort of, that goes back to the foundation of sort of how is it that we have looked at the Cold War and specifically Eastern Bloc and communism to serve our own Western interests and sort of how does that allied these historical realities and these people's experiences. And again, just does a disservice to all of it. Um, so it's really about sort of uprooting and asking these questions and, and being like, you know, why have I been taught this? Why have I believed it? What's missing? Um, yeah, I mean, I could go on and on about this topic because sure. I feel really strongly about Absolutely. it. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I don't want to keep rambling about it. Your life's work. I mean, I think that we'll get into this a little bit later on in the conversation around how this, you know, how this plays into your role as an educator and what what you believe that role to be and bringing students into this work and and all of that. So so valuable. Um, I I want to touch on a quote from one of your from one of your essays. I also want to just discuss this idea of like the difference between political and human rights issues or where those things cross over. Like you, you mentioned the word politi politicization, how things can, that are not political are politicized. I mean, I think we're seeing that all the time with Black Lives Matter, uh, with um, issues of women's rights, reproductive rights, like all of this is just, it becomes a political issue, but it's really just about human rights. And I think that those are conflated uh, so, so often. And so I'm wondering how that, how you kind of, been forced to like pick that apart through with a historical lens in a place that you're not you're not from that you're learning about this place you're learning about this history and you're also having to decipher how these words have been used to sort of manipulate 
Yeah, this is such a great question. And I think what I was thinking about this morning really just sort of ex exposes some of my ignorance and that I, 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 I'm not an expert on human rights at all. Um, so I actually, and even seeing this, I'm like, I, I really need to kind of do more work on this to kind of figure out how, what, what's the overlap between, you know, um, the politics of sport and, and human rights in sport, and even just not even just sports related, just, um, you know, more broadly. Um, and I, I don't think I have a great answer. Um, but, I, you know, the one thing that I will say is I just keep coming back to, and this is something that has always been at the heart of my research, um, but has really with the end of sport and the public work that we've done and kind of opening, broadening my lenses to kind of beyond just focusing on Hungary and kind of placing it in both a global historical context, but also within a contemporary context, is sort of like, um, where are athletes' voices in these in, in any of these stories that we're kind of looking at, whether it's Cold War and Hungary, whether it's talking about US college sport, whether it's talking about the Olympic Games, kind of whatever it is that we're talking about, you know, where are athletes' voices in the conversation? Are they being included? Is their health being centered? Um, and if not, why? And, and usually it's that athletes' voices are, are being excluded or are only being used selectively. Um, and, and certainly, I think there's so much evidence, both historically and, and contemporaneously, that um, athletes' health and well-being is absolutely not centered. Um, and, and so that's kind of a non-answer, I think, to your question about sort of politicization versus, you know, in, in comparison to human rights. I just, I need to do more kind of studying about what actually, what do we mean when we're talking about human rights? I guess I don't want to like be glib or kind of misuse, misuse sure. the, the phrase. Um, but I, I just think I just always sort of like, what are athletes perspectives? What have they been told that they should believe? You know, even with it, the, the term sort of quote unquote student athlete, you know, how is that as a term used to sort of allied um, or sort of prevent paying athletes for their labor? Um, but then also, you know, terms like amateurism, which I look at a lot within my own work, but um, obviously still hugely relevant to today. Um, yeah, so that's not really a great answer to your question, but that's kind of the best that I could come up with this morning. Well, I just appreciate your honesty about just needing to learn more. I mean, I think that it's nice to be seen as someone who has an answer to everything. I think that we all have that impulse to want to come up. I've certainly uh, done that before. And so, but I, I have made a conscious uh, choice to say I don't know when I don't know. And so that's really wonderful. And I also think that this is a big question and, and it's something that we have to navigate on a daily basis, whether it's with local news national news or international news just trying to decipher how things are being presented to us and what lens they're being shown to us through and so it's just a muscle that I myself am trying to strengthen and have you know in the past few years really become aware of of how things can be so conflated and used yeah. and politicized in order to I mean just essentially get votes um, and right. remain in power but that they really come down to to issues of of whether we're treating people as people uh, Definitely. And, and, and sorry, sorry to interject. You know, the other thing is that I feel like human rights, people use that in a lot of different ways. Um, and and I, either they, they use it for both like genuine like human rights issues. And I think it's a term that's also been politicized to kind of advocate for only certain people as human rights. So I think that's another reason why I, you know, I am saying that I need to do more research. Um, but, you know, I, I want to be careful, as I know you do as well, right, to kind of like categorize in a way that actually does justice to the, you know, the, the people that it needs to do justice to. Um, I'm thinking of, I taught a class, I taught a, a history capstone class last spring on global migrations. And we really were like talking about picking apart what, what do we mean when we use the word migrant? 
What do we mean when we use the word refugee? And I think like studying anything, you know, what do we mean when we're talking about human rights? What, what do we mean when we're talking about um, how, how sports and politics are absolutely connected? Um, yeah, so that's just something I need to, I need, definitely need to look into more. That's so great to just think about clearly defining things too, because it's hard to solve an issue or discuss something properly if you can't adequately define it. I, I work with this organization back in Baton Rouge where I went to grad school called Dialogue on Race Louisiana. And the first, it's basically you facilitate conversations around racism with different people that choose to join. And the first session is just definitions mm -hmm. and then discussing those definitions because if we're not defining the issues how can we or properly or agreeing on a shared definition within this context how can we address them and problem solve around them mm -hmm. and so i think that that's just um it, defining things is very powerful mm -hmm. and that's really uh great to have you bring that up so we'll get a little bit specifically into your work um so the statement from your essay the essay is called from defectors to cooperators the impact of 1956 on athletes, sport leaders, and sport policy in socialist Hungary. And the quote I want to discuss in particular is, the public continues to perceive Cold War sport in Eastern Europe with an unambiguous totalitarian framework, wherein the East German doping scheme in the 1970s to 1980s symbolizes the entirety of the Eastern Bloc sport experience. The framework serves contemporary audiences across the former Iron Curtain in different but crucial ways. First, it reinforces the triumphalist Cold War narrative in the West. It also enables everyone to blame the abuses in sport on the now defunct socialist systems. So I think that even though this is an essay that's about a particular year and a particular moment, that quote really speaks to this larger understanding of or misunderstanding of socialist systems and and how and you know the the ways in which the that period of time impacted sports and impacted the west quote unquote yeah yeah and you know i think um you know i, I think so much of um what kind of has prompted me to kind of come to this conclusion and like continue to see it in things like gymnastics and things like that is just um you know, everything, everything that I was researching, you know, I went, whenever um, somebody starts, starts a research project, right, even though they try to kind of come in with a, you know, a blank canvas and an open mind and all this stuff, like you have implicit biases, right, and you have preconceived notions that you think about your topic. And I think when I started doing these interviews with athletes in particular, and, and I was doing archival research too, but really it was the interviews that just kept like, um, showing me, giving me all, you know, this insight that really contradicted, again, like everything that I've been raised to think. Um, and so I think just kind of realizing how these narratives of Cold War sport have, have truly been used for political ends. And like history is always political and historical narratives, I think are always political. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing. That's just how the, the field of history was created within the Western world. And, and so, um, it's really hard to escape it at this point. So it's really just about acknowledging it, that it's not that one side is politicizing history more necessarily more than the other. It's just that it's always been that way. Some people are just more transparent about it. And, you know, I think that the East German, to kind of break that quote down a little bit more, um, what happened in East Germany, which was, which was horrible. It was a state-directed doping scheme that was run by the secret police. It was really, really bad. Um, and I don't mean to, to negate that or to relativize it or anything, but what happened there, you, you know, we, we have researchers have not been able to get a sense of to what extent what was going on in East Germany was actually replicated in all the other countries. 
Um, I think part of that is because um, the, the, the archive for former East Germany were opened in the 1990s to researchers, partly because um, unified Germany wanted to discredit the East German state and show that West Germany and capitalism and democracy won the Cold War. And so opening up these archives was a, was, was, was a great endeavor, but there are also political reasons behind that, I think. And so really exposing what happened in East Germany, it was to kind of get justice for the, the survivors of the doping scheme, absolutely. But I think there's also a political project as well. Whereas in these other countries, where there wasn't that kind of um, as much of a firm break. And I'm not to say that there wasn't like a firm break in former East Germany either, but there were so many continuities in all these countries with athletes continuing their careers in the 1990s, um, whether it was sport officials also continuing their careers, coaches also continuing their careers. So there are all these people who have a really vested interest um, and also um, political leaders too, who have a vested interest in, in keeping you know, research on, on doping really under lock and key. And it's not to say that like, we can't find anything about it, but again, there's also a political interest to kind of not talk about these things. Um, and what I found in, in Hungary and what I think is the case in other countries, but again, we don't know because the research um, hasn't been able to show it, but in Hungary, doping was, was pretty decentralized. Um, and so I have people and I, you know, I have people that would say, you know, doping existed, but I didn't take part in it which is fine. And when I, you know, did my interviews, I was very open with people that I'm going to ask you about doping. You know, I'm not, this is not like a gotcha moment, you know, like I'm not trying to catch you to say anything. I'm not trying to prosecute anybody. Um, but that way people had some agency to, you know, say what they felt comfortable saying, because I really wanted to build trust with them as an outsider and as a Westerner. Um, it, you know, that there was also a one fencer or one athlete in particular who in his, he's a lawyer and in his memoir, he explains how he would bring a condom filled with pee from one of the cleaning ladies for his doping test. And I kind of was like, well, why would you openly admit this and, and put it in writing when you're a lawyer? I thought that's a very, very interesting. Um, but he was kind of like, he seemed kind of proud of it in the sense of like, I got one over these, you know, doping tests, which is also interesting. And also kind of, I think shows a level of agency that they had. Um, and, and, and anyways, I, I know I'm kind of going off on this doping thing, but um, it just goes to show that it's a lot more nuanced. Um, but, and, but again, I think there's been a lot of political reasons to really hone in on the East German case and kind of use that and use, you know, like the miracle game of, I think it's the 1980 Olympics. I always forget if it's 1980 or 1984, the, the hockey game between the Soviets and the Americans, which there's that Disney movie. Um, and there's great scholarship about the Disney movie that I always cite a lot because it's so, so great. Um, that again, really shows how, you know, these cultural products, these cultural representations of the Cold War really come out in specific moments to prove political ends um, with this miracle uh, film, which I watched growing up and I watched going to many, many summits and like chowding, you know, chanting USA, USA on like buses and stuff like that. Um, there's really interesting research showing that that movie came out of a post 9-11 moment where a lot of American audiences were really freaked out about our position, a position of the U.S. in the world. And so referring back to a Cold War moment where there were clear sides of good and evil of East and West and clear sides of where the U.S. stood in this global fight for the Cold War and the U.S. comes out victorious, as that being a really comforting moment for, for audiences to kind of wrap their heads around and to feel proud of being American. And I was like, that like really kind of blew my mind of like, whoa, again, really breaking down some of these barriers and, you know, asking you prompting us to ask deep questions. 
Um, and that, you know, um, and so again, this is a very, very windy answer, but just to kind of say that this has been sort of a multi-year kind of revelation for me to kind of figure out, you know, why do we study the Cold War the way we do? What purpose does it serve for Eastern Europeans? What purpose does it serve for, for Western and for American audiences? And I think it's just about kind of listening to athletes and also thinking through, like you said, what are all these layers of narratives and sort of what purpose do, purposes do they serve? Uh, which is kind of a never ending question, but one that I'm really, really interested in. Yes, and I think this this sort of missing each other. I mean, when we miss each other as sort of the specific histories of different places, like Hungary having a very different history than Lithuania, having a different history than Ukraine, you know, all of these things and facing different contemporary issues as well. Um, where are we missing each other as individuals too? Mm. Like you're saying that you have this amazing opportunity to interview athletes in Hungary or former athletes and, and all the information they're sharing with you where you're like, wait, what? How? Okay. Like, and then having to zoom out and, and look at that within this larger context. Like, I just think that this, this, uh, your work, or it sounds like it just offers this opportunity to, to sort of properly, whatever that word means, even properly understand, um, individual stories within the larger context. And that's, uh, that, uh, is powerful. Yeah. So I, uh, I'm wondering, you're a historian, you're looking back often, but, uh, I mean, I think we can unpack this a little bit later too, but I have like a Twitter crush on your Twitter feed because I think that it's, you're handling that medium in such an effective way and in such a clear way. I mean, just as an educator myself, uh, some of the things that you're sharing, I'm like, I want to be sharing these things or learning these things all the time or having these, you know, this type of really like clear, this is how I do it. How do you do it? Conversation, mm -hmm. you know, back mm -hmm. and forth with people outside of my immediate circle. Um, I'm just wondering also how your work is, you see your work being relevant in, within issues of, of, uh, within contemporary issues around sports today. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. That it, first off, that is such a compliment. I'm, I always kind of feel like my Twitter is like very haphazard and like shows my ADHD brain of like ding, 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 ding. I'm thinking of a thousand things at one time. And, and, you know, and I, and, and not always, admittedly, not always handling it great, you know, gracefully and, and people kind of checking me and being like, oh, this comes off as this way and all this stuff, which is, you know, I need that. And it's great. Um, I think, I mean, the whole question of sort of how to, how, to, how I've sort of made my research relevant or kind of relevant but sort of make connections between my historical research and what's going on today um it's it's been sort of a long process and that's really been sped up by working on at the end of sport podcast but i think really like um, it's it started um 2015 when i got on twitter my partner who um used to be on a podcast about the toronto raptors and has always been an nba a huge nba fan he loves the mavericks and like dirk Nowitzki is like his guy you know he did german history and like his, right. his, he started learning German because like they had a German exchange student. And so they wa started watching Dirk Nowitzki games. And so there's like this kind of long, lovely history of friendship um, that that kind of boils down to. And my partner was like, oh, you know, there are some like sport historians on Twitter. They have this great blog where they share their research. And like, I, you know, I think you should touch base with them because in my PhD program, um, there were no... Uh, professors, who, well, that's not true, um, but there were very few graduate students who were doing sport history. There was like one guy who was a couple years ahead of me. And then in my last few years there, we had another um, student came in, uh, both who have graduated and are professors now. Um, 
but so there was like very kind of little community for that sport specific work. Um, and history was very much um, not connected to like sports management or sports sociology or anything and the way that I see the other programs, which I think was a missed opportunity. But anyways, I got involved in Twitter. And so for, you know, and, and, and I made a lot of friends there. And for years, I was sort of trying to like, you know, bring up the Hungarian sport case and kind of show its relevance. But, you know, very gradually expanding my Twitter following. And like, you know, there were a few people that would take interest, but it wasn't like a ton of people. But one of those people was uh, Nathan Coleman Lamb, who has Hungarian background. And so he had touched base with me before they started the podcast to be like, hey, I, you know, I think your work's really interesting. I'm actually Hungarian and I study sport. Like we should, we should touch base one time. And he was already publishing things and like the Chronicle of Higher Ed and other places about college sport. And I was learning so, so much from him. Um, and then uh, when they started the End of Sport podcast, they started it um, during the pandemic, like a lot of people. It was very early on. I think it was like maybe April, 2020 or something when they started it, maybe May. Um, and so I DM'd him and I was like, and I was listening to their podcast, I'm like, this is such a cool project. And I DM Nathan and I was like, Hey, you know, I'd really like to come on your show. If you think that would work, if that would make sense. And this is how I think my work could, could kind of fit into your project by sort of showing that, you know, there are some aspects of the case of socialist hungry. They can show us how we might treat athletes better, right? It's not that the whole case should be copied, you know, um, totally, but just, there are some elements that we could use over here. And he was like, Oh, Absolutely. And so I came on the show and just had this amazing conversation with them. Um, and, and, you know, for like um, people who study contemporary things to really appreciate the historical perspective, like that's just so cool. And um, at the end of the episode, they were like, hey, we're actually looking for a co-host. What would you think about coming on? And like, I listened to some podcasts. I had been on one other podcast before and I was like, oh, like, let me think about it. Like, I love this idea, but I'm trying not to take on too much work or whatever. Um, but then once I joined, I think really like was such a learning curve in terms of thinking about sport in a contemporary context. Cause even though I was an athlete growing up, I really had not analyzed my experiences, um, you know, within the context of all this amazing scholarship that, that people are doing in all different kinds of fields. Um, so it really opened me up to this new world to figure out, like to reinforce this idea that like my research can sort of teach us something about the present. Um, and then once I kind of made the connection to the gymnastics stuff, I was like, whoa, like there really is like a direct relevance. It's not just that like we should treat athletes better and paying athletes for their labor, which is what they did in the socialist Hungarian context is that every athlete, once you reach a certain level, you got paid by the state and you didn't get paid this like enormous, you know, you weren't like a millionaire. You were not like a party official that got, you know, a top party official that got a ton of money that had like a, you know, a car and all these things. That the, the state gave to you, but you still lived better than averaged. Um, and it was clear that this is something that was super beneficial for athletes' lives. They didn't have to, you know, juggle a bunch of jo different jobs just to pay their bills and all these things. Um, and, and, and then the gymnastics, you know, so I was thinking, you know, you know, college athletes, you know, they need to be paid for the labor. And then the gymnastics kind of question really opened the door to think about, you know, these histories of abuse and sort of what are we not talking about and what do we need to be talking about? Um, and so I, I think it's, it, you know, it was a very gradual process and then joining the end of sport just was a really like uphill sort of thing that really kind of helped me figure out how to do that much more. And, and, and it was also, you know, talking to other people and figuring out how, how do they connect their work to what's going on. And I think, you know, if you're a sports sociologist or like an anthropologist of sport, 
um, you know, some of these fields that, you know, you study the contemporary moment or within the last 20 years. So those connections are a bit more clear. I think if you do American sport history, again, some of the connections are a bit more clear for like an American based audience. But if you're studying somewhere else in the world, you know, making people pay attention to these other contexts is really, really hard. Um, so I think it's sort of talking with these other people and thinking through like, how do I make these connections? Um, I think has been really beneficial. And it's something that, you know, we're not taught in graduate school. You know, we're taught to really focus on a very narrow topic and to speak to specialists, which is totally useful. But I think, you know, appealing to a broader audience um, and making your, making your work accessible to people, um, which opens the door to other negative things such as harassment, which I can talk about more later if you want. Um, but I mean, I think can also have a real positive um, impact. Um, so yeah, um, I think that's kind of, again, another long answer, but I'm happy to dive into other things if you would like me to related to that. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that's so important because it, it, it is almost impossible to properly understand what's happening now without historical context. And that historical mm -hmm. context can be from 50 years ago, can be from 100 years ago, but also can be, uh, you know, um, more recent. Like, I, I think we just are seeing this with the, the Negro League stats being included mm -hmm. in MLB stats. And it's like, that is an important thing and it needed to ha happen. It also needed to happen like a long time ago. And, and why wasn't it happening? And, and who's who's yeah. in charge of archiving all the all the races like where do we go right. where's the museum of of racism and sports <laughs> you know right, as far right. as like where you can go for those um uh primary documents mm -hmm. of how that existed rather than you know now the primary sources mlb saying mm -hmm. that these stats are included so i think that it's just uh you know i mean of course we have the negro leagues museum and this is just one example but i think it's really important to to have all those even as things evolve perhaps for the better to really mark how they were before in order to to understand where we are today mm -hmm. uh i'm mm -hmm. sure this is like talking to you i mean i'm saying this to everyone listening but it's like since you're a historian i'm sure i'm preaching preaching to the choir a little bit but just like that 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 work is so powerful Right. Yeah. And, and even, and I'm not a specialist in history of baseball or by sure. any means, but I think even with that example, um, I know there are other people who were sort of, you know, wanting the, the, the incorporation of this material and this history to be more nuanced to say, you know, okay, so what happens when we say that this history is now part of being archived within and part of this broader history, we need to make sure to not merely subsume the history yes. of the Negro Leagues within this larger history, because then it sort of looks like a history of like white triumph of like, right. oh, we got it for, we got it for our racism. Good for us. Absolutely. You know, the whole like, um, and it, I know that's not what you're saying. I, I know that's not what you're saying, but a lot of people think that, right. They see like, oh, you know, remember the Titans, the white people learned to not be racist. And like, you know, I love that movie too. And again, that was another movie I watched going to so many swim meets feeling very empowered, like people come together in sports and they overcome their differences and like they can, but like, why do these differences have to, you know, why do they exist and why does this discrimination exist? And sort of like, I think, you know, again, the kind of nuance and sort of how are we doing this? And, you know, mistakes are always going to be made and there are always going to be critiques and it's about being like, oh, that's a good point. And sort of how do we incorporate this history while not, you know, covering up or sort of overlooking you know, white racism with, within this whole thing. Um, and, you know, it's a very nuanced process and, and it's something with students. I know we, you want to talk about teaching later. And I you think a lot of students, it can be overwhelming. And I think it can be overwhelming for a lot of people to think like, 
you know, how do we do this in a way that's not problematic and how do we do it really carefully? And it seems like it's too much work. And I always say like, it's about taking small steps. It's not about fixing everything in one fell swoop because that's frankly not even possible, um, but also being open to sort of critique and modifications because the world is always changing and the ways that we talk about discrimination, abuse or whatever are always changing. And so nothing is, no one's ever gonna have it right and then it's gonna be done end of story, right? It's sort of an, an ever evolving thing, um, which, is, which, which makes it hard, but also makes it interesting, I think. Right, and allows for history to be alive in a sense for us to, to mm-hmm. discuss in different ways based on new information. Um, and yeah. so I think that that, that uh, I think history is a very exciting uh, field and sometimes gets a bad a bad rap. <laughs> and I, I would say it's, it, it, yeah, just a very much uh, alive. So let's talk about your teaching. Uh, I think that, um, you know, some of these things that you bring up within your, your research and then also I'm guessing within your classes can, can turn people's understandings on their head a little bit uh, around, around the narratives. Like you're saying that you had that experience as well as a young person. Uh, and so I'm just wondering how you bring students in to this, this uh, unpacking of these narratives and saying this narrative is, is false sometimes or used, was used for a specific reason and, and here's an opportunity for us not to adhere to it. Absolutely. I mean, this is something that I'm, I'm always kind of tweaking and, and modifying, um, but I think I, I try to be very open with students about my own background in terms of, you know, like I grew up swimming and I grew up really ignorant um, about the histories of racism and all these things, and, you know, kind of opening a door to sort of show, like, I used to think these things because I was raised to think these ways and I was raised to be shielded from certain things. And it's been an uncomfortable, and I know the word uncomfortable gets used a lot now, but you know, it's been a not um, comforting process in a lot of ways to kind of have to reflect and have to think like, and have to realize that the ways that I used to think were harmful and and were not accurate and all these things. And so I try to make it very clear uh, from the get-go, although always room to improve that, you know, this, the cl- the sport history class I teach is going to be one of a lot of deep self-reflection and kind of think about what do we know about a prior topic? Maybe why do we know about it in that way? Um, and sort of what do we know now that we've read a lot of really deeply researched histories, a lot of really nuanced histories and sort of what do we know as a result? And so for some students, it, it might be a total reversal. For some students, it might confirm some things that they already knew. Uh, for some students, I think it's may, could be in one ear out the other. You know, my professor's just, you know, a liberal white person trying to teach me things, trying to indoctrinate me. You know, I, I don't, you know, it's kind of hard to know where students are. And I think that's a mix of all of these things. Um, and I think it's just a product of climate and a bunch of other things. And, you know, even though I would like to, um, have everybody, you know, realize all the things that I've realized. That's not, you know, really possible or realistic, even though I want it to be. Um, Planting seeds. I think this is another, we talked a little mm -hmm. about gardening gardens before, before we started recording, but just this idea of you never know. I know that I have thought back to some things that I've learned in college that at the time I was like, Oh, like, when am I getting out of this class? I mean, Mm -hmm. I was not the best student Mm -hmm. or, you know, this, my head was in other places that I've just been like, wow, that has stuck yeah. with me and now is like extremely valuable. And, right. and so you never know, even if it, yeah. I mean, I feel like I tell myself that too. I'm just like sprinkling some seeds, mm. pour, pouring water a couple of times and then just like, <laughs> yeah. see you later. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. And, and so, and, and, and the way that I um, 
sort of speak because, and this is how I structure a lot of my courses. And this is something that I think my department really focuses on really well is we very much acknowledge that students come into the classroom with all kinds of experiences, all levels of history, knowledge and teaching. And that some people haven't liked history because they've learned that it's facts and dates, that history that is being kind of um, taught at them and not taught with them, not, you know, right, not sort of, you know, encouraging students to kind of share their experiences and learn the material with the professor. Um, and so because I really focus in a lot of my classes on like trying to kind of overturn narratives and kind of think about why do we learn history the way that we do. Um, and a lot of my classes, I, rather than kind of trying to cover all of the history of everything, which is just impossible about any topic. And this sport history class is a world history of sport. So there's no way we can cover everything as much as I would want to. <laughs> and so I focus, I, I, I try to split the class into like um, a certain number of moments in sport history. So I usually do between five or six on my classes um, where we do really, really, we dive super, super deep on a topic. And so we start off, for example, and I'm a swimmer. So we start off with the history of um, West African aquatics uh, before, during, and after um, European colonization and enslavement to kind of look at, you know, we think there's this racist stereotype that black people can't swim. Um, that I was raised to think as well. Um, and so a lot of people grew up thinking this, um, but then there's this amazing history, uh, a historian, um, Kevin Dawson, who we had on our show, he wrote this book that just totally blew my mind called Undercurrents of Power. And he talks about how, you know, contrary to the stereotype that West Africans, uh, West Africans were the world's best um, swimmers and canoers, divers and all these things, um, and that that history essentially gets like stripped away from them as a result of colonization and enslavement. And then in the 20th century, just desegregation of pools and, and lynchings. And that really just like blew my mind of like, and, and then I come into the picture in terms of my own history of getting into swimming in the 90s and the 2000s, but is predominantly white sport. And so I sort of start with this sort of reflective reflection of my own experiences and how it fits into this history to sort of show that we are all a part of these processes because of our involvement in sports, whether it's as athletes, as um, you know, fans, as coaches, as referees, or whatever it is, even people who were turned away from sports, maybe because they didn't like physical education, maybe PE classes were really isolating and painful for them, which I think they are for a lot of people. Um, and so we start with that moment, and then we do a, you know, a couple others, and really it's about you know, what do we know about this history beforehand? Let's do a deep dive. What do we get out of it? And then sort of the final, and, and that way it's really about not saying like, you know, you shouldn't have known these things. And, and also like these histories are disconnected from us because I think history feels very disconnected from people and try to really bring students in where they are and say like your experiences with athletics are valid and they are valuable. And so let's think about how to build on them by learning all these other histories. Um, and, and that's kind of my approach. I think it works with some students. I think it probably doesn't work with others. Um, and it is hard to navigate as the politics, as a political atmosphere in the US changes. Um, that can be really difficult to navigate, but that's kind of been my approach. Um, and and it, seems, it seems to work pretty well. Um, yeah, so that's kind of how I try to bring students in. That's so exciting. I mean, I think that's a class that I would want to be a part of in the sense of just it sounds like there's really a space created for everyone to show up with all mm -hmm. the experiences they've had, with all the knowledge that they've had, and that there's a process of moving through this material side by side rather than look what I know and what you haven't known. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so right, I think that right. that is really 
uh, effective and, and something that needs to be done with a lot of purpose and also isn't always I think that I can think to some teachers that I've had who have taught in that way but that is not I would say always the norm for how information mm -hmm. is passed mm -hmm. on and yeah. uh, it takes a lot of um, going in with a lot of purpose to, right. to teach in that way even if yeah. you don't I mean I think you can you can still teach in like a sort of that traditional sense of like less collaborative even if you by accident even if you don't mm -hmm, think of yourself mm -hmm. as all-knowing or whatever even if you're right. not a jerk or something like that yeah. it's just hard to sort of sort of undo that that relationship and and also you know going back to what we mentioned before just saying like I don't know sometimes I mean that's something that mm -hmm. I've worked on a lot <laughs> with students uh is being like let's look that up because that could be really mm -hmm, important mm -hmm. and I'm not sure of it and um yeah. and so yeah anyways I think that that's just a really uh, I'm so glad that you you went in depth with that specific example with that um the undoing that narrative around um, swimming and and how racism has functioned in 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 that way and so that's yeah really great yeah and you know, you know even this is something I didn't even really realize until recently that even and, and I certainly did not always teach this way like this has very much been an evolution and kind of figure I think sure. it's easy to kind of be like oh wow she did that automatically like no way <laughs> like that is you know I very much was like traditional like I'm going to give you material this is how we're going to learn it this is this this is the narrative and and I'm not saying that that's bad but that's just you know a different way of teaching um but I think you know that very much sort of replicates my own research experiences of sort of like realizing like oh wow the way I was taught is not the way it was and kind of again listening to athletes voices um and actually maybe I could actually lay that you know talk about that with students to kind of explain my own teaching approach sort of as I'm sort of thinking through how to how to change things in the future um and you know that I think that model you know it's not always easily replicable for every teaching situation I think people that maybe have like 300 student classrooms that's going to look very different. Right. And so being at a small liberal arts college, Absolutely. it's a little bit easier to kind of do these things. Um, so if I were at a much bigger school with much bigger classes, higher teaching load, you know, I think, would I be able to maybe have all of that intentions going into it? Maybe not because I would be doing all of these other things and, you know, um, also um, having just totally different teaching circumstances. So I think I just kind of wanted to, to make that clear too. Absolutely. And I think that you're right. I mean, teaching at a liberal arts college myself with uh, the biggest class I had this year was 12 people. Uh, mm -hmm. That I mean, it's just like things are possible within that context right. that are not in other places. Even I mean, I came out of two really big state programs for my own education. And right. uh, there were very few classes I had that were 12 people that weren't sort <laughs> of the, the like the meeting classes outside of the large lecture. Um, mm. So anyways, I think that that's just a... Uh, that's a, a thing that can be can be used so much in the situation and and yeah it's great for that. Mm -hmm. Good. Well, I think that that we touched on most of my questions and I'm just uh, I'm excited to follow you more. I think that with your uh, Twitter account, I think that there's just this nice balance between sharing things to do with your own research again. Like this is how I found out about. Oh my God, maybe not everything bad about sports came from Eastern Europe or something. I mean, it's just like crazy when we think about like Bobby Knight, this like celebrated coach for so long because he was winning this like serial abuser. Mm. It's like, he has nothing to do with Romania. You know, I no, mean, I just think right, like, but right. we were, we were also celebrating him. I mean, and when I say right, we, right. I'm not talking about us, but like as a culture, we allowed right. for that to happen right. over and over mm -hmm. again. And for him to feel comfortable behaving in an abusive uh way that would just be like 
unacceptable for any student right. athlete to behave right. in that way. You know, just like the standards also for, for mm-hmm. I mean, I think also white men and mm-hmm. what they're showing strong emotion versus, uh, you know, whatever women, people call it, like it's just so twisted. Um, mm-hmm. So anyways, I think that that was just such a powerful realization for me that I got through your um, uh, Twitter handle. So I guess one thing that I just want to touch on really quickly is like, what have you, have you do go into that feed with like purpose in what you're choosing to share, what you're doing? You said it can be kind of a free for all, but for me, it feels curated. Like as someone who Twitter has not been the social media that I have spent the most time in or used the most. And I see how dark and upsetting of a place it can be. And I'm wondering how, but, but there are certain feeds where I'm like, this is really useful. And if Twitter didn't exist, this feed wouldn't exist and I wouldn't know this. And so how do you, how do you come into your step into that tweeting space? Yeah, that's such a good question. And I just want to say like, it's not for everybody. Like, I think I have a, I have some good friends who would like, they, they see the positives that I get out of it, but they're just like, it's really anxiety inducing. Right. Yeah. So I just, yeah. And I, I think, I didn't think it is for a lot of people and I know I'm can be overwhelming. So like, I might be contributing that too with like my literally constant tweeting. Um, but I mean, I, it feels haphazard to me, but I, but I guess if I were to sort of think through the kind of themes that I tend to focus on, are the things that I like care deeply about, um, which, you know, was like my my research, although my research because of COVID and sort of other things, I don't tweet about that as, unless I'm like writing something about it. So I don't tweet about it as much as I probably could. Um, (laughs) So a lot of it's just sort of like trying to, um, I mean, obviously uh, tweeting about stuff that my podcast was doing and also kind of like now I've gotten much more into critiquing contemporary sports and sports media, especially because sports media and how, kind of our modern U.S. sports system is run because, you know, like I you just study history. So like I analyze kind of the positives and negatives and, all, and everything in between in the past. So then when I see all the things going on now, I'm like, holy cow, it's, it's so overwhelming from Bobby Knight. There's the stuff at, you know, Ohio State University that Jim Jordan has been trying to, you know, cover up. But there's yes. just the stuff at University of Michigan. I mean, it's literally just like everywhere. So it's almost just been overwhelming for me to be like, oh my God, like, you know, um, like thankfully I wasn't sexually abused in swimming. Like I got off really lucky. And like all of these things are just, it's just almost overwhelming the amount of evidence to kind of show that like people use sports for really deeply harmful ways and that athletes are just so not prepared for how to handle it and that, you know, advocating for themselves and all these things. Um, so that's a, a big thing that I focus on. Um, and I also try to also really focus on teaching because I do really care a lot about that. Um, there are so many great uh, teachers on Twitter that share a lot of really insightful things that I've learned so much from, um, whether it's like inclusion policies or, for example, this semester I did like this two-week opt-out policy where if students um, just had like a really bad two weeks or they were having to go home and get surgery for something, which I have a ton of athletes in my classes, so that's something that happens often. Um, you know, they can select one or two weeks out of the semester and be like, you know what, I'm going to opt out of the work for this week and it's not going to count negatively against me. And I still encourage them to come to class. And I would say about half of them still come to class to participate, to, to learn and to, to engage in discussion, even though they don't, they don't need to. Um, and, you know, I workshopped that idea with someone on Twitter um, because I was trying to 
struggling with how to sort of phrase it and how to do it in a way that's setting clear guidelines for how to how to use this policy so that I know what they're doing, but also to make them to invite them to use it if they needed it. Um, so I think there's sort of like my scholarship, um, there's kind of my public work, which blends into my scholarship sometimes, and then there's teaching. And I think it's just like constantly learning whether it's about German history and how we need to be thinking about the Holocaust within these broader kind of um, histories of colonialism and colonialism and genocide, or whether it's, um, you know, how to teach sport history, or whatever, you know, I think these are kind of the various things. Um, and then, and then critiquing sort of higher ed to sort of treat people better and give people permanent jobs and stability. Like, you know, you know, the, we have the graduate students at Columbia right now who are, who are striking. We have the U University of California student union that just won a major, major thing, like their union will be recognized. So I think it's sort of advocating for these different groups of people who are really, to go back to the human rights thing that are like advocating for very basic, I'm laughing because it's so basic and ridiculous, but like advocating for like basic stability, basic rights, basic support. Um, you know, trying to, you know, push against the identification of higher ed um, and, and, and all of these things. Um, um, yeah, so I, it feels very haphazard, but I would sort of say those are kind of the themes that I tend to focus on. Yeah, that's great. And as someone who I, uh, you know, when breaking news happens around sports, so social justice issues, politics, uh, all of that, sometimes there are, are people's like accounts that I go to to be like I wonder what this person is thinking about this mm. or certain podcasts that I listen to because I think within the mainstream sometimes it's so easy for this to be something to be celebrated when really we need a second look at it or yeah. well how what is the potential impact you know I think this happened with name mm. image and likeness um and mm. things like that that recent decision by the NCAA to um allow players to make Im uh, money off of their name image and likeness but all these other things like it's just that nothing is ever uh so clear or so good you know that we need to just right. forget all these histories or forget the the problems that we still have and mm -hmm. um i think this also happened recently with the ioc's decision around uh changing their, their they put out a new sort of um guidelines for making uh for making the olympics and hopefully other sports that are working, um, or, or ho hopefully other sports institutions more inclusive for transgender people um, mm -hmm. in their language and uh, inclusivity of transgender uh, athletes in their in decision-making. And then, I mean, but it's like, we, I want to celebrate that, but also like the IFC is so problematic in all these other ways. It's like, dude, mm -hmm. what's happening? And is this actually gonna yeah. be something that has an impact? And do we need to wait right. to see what the impact is before we're like, right. this is great. Right. So. Right. It's just a real, I think that we live in like a break, of course, we live in a breaking news world and we want to have really quick takes and reactions and, and jump on pods and, and have the smart thing to say. And it's also like, we don't, there's so many things that have to play out and, and, you know, right. to, it's, it's hard to, to be able to, to always know whether it's, it's good or not. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, mm -hmm. your, your account is one of them that one of those that I go to, to say, I wonder what Johanna thinks about this because, uh, or if, if, nice you, if you haven't said anything, I know it might not be as good as I, as, as I was hoping it is. <laughs> or, um, I, or I'm looking to other people. I mean, sure, that's the thing is absolutely. I do the same thing. Sure. I, I'm like, exactly like I, you know, when it comes to, um, you know, anti-trans legislation and stuff, I'm like, I'm, I'm not an expert. That's right. not my lived experience. So like, 
sometimes I feel the urge to like have a hot take or to be like, this is what I think about it. But like me too, I have to be like, okay, there are people that have expertise. I do not have this. Right. Um, but I also want to amplify what it is that they're saying. So that's such a huge compliment. Um, thank you so much. And just to say that I do the same with other people. Um, it's all about kind of recognizing limitations, but like you said, sure. realizing that like, we may want to celebrate some things, but we don't know how they play out. And I think the way that you worded that is just beautiful because that's exactly right. Like, you know, it, it's hard to kind of think through all these difficult layers when things happen in the moment. Um, and that's kind of a constant, I think, challenge, I think, to bring nuance to the table. Um, I certainly fail at that at times. It's all, you know, part of the learning process and being a human, I think. Oh, absolutely. And learning and the fact that, you know, as scholars or as uh, academics, it's like that the the expertise is always something that's building. I mean, I would say mm -hmm. I'm, you know, that it's not, it's a work in progress for sure. And it's only, mm -hmm. uh, it, I, it again, goes back to just like needing to take care of something over and over again to keep sharp. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Well, I'm so glad we could find time during a finals week for you have finals right now as well. Um, this is actually our last week of class next oh, week great. we have finals, but I know okay. most people are wrapping up this week. Yeah. So um, thanks so much for making time during still during your semester. And I was just so excited to talk to a, uh, a Twitter crush and uh, get to like understand your work better and all of that. And Yes, let's just we'll stay in touch and um, uh, yeah, I'll keep following all that you're all that you're doing. So thanks for coming on and sharing sharing all of that. Thank you. Yeah, I'm so glad that you reached out and it's been really cool listening to your your podcast too and like opening up um, you know me to more people like in the American Studies world, which is not one that like I have too many inroads in, but I'm like yes. I really want to get more involved in it. So I've really enjoyed a lot of your interviews. Um, um, and stuff like that. Um, and yeah, definitely hope that this is the, you know, the start of a, a many conversations, I think. And so much, uh, thank you for having me on. This is really such a delightful conversation. So take care, uh, safe holidays to you and yours, and, uh, we'll talk soon. Sounds good. Thanks so much. This is wonderful. Sure. Bye. Bye.